Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Weinstein, and today on the podcast, we're diving back into the archives to hear a program with Dr. Mark Klemek. Dr. Klemek's initial podcast has generated more than 12,000 downloads, making his program the most listened to program on the Cedarville Stories podcast. Let's now go to my conversation with Dr. Mark Klemek on the Cedarville Stories podcast. Mark Klemek, a faculty member in Cedarville School of Nursing for the past 38 years, is joining me today on the program. In addition to teaching at Cedarville, he was a faculty member at Youngstown State University and at Wayne State University in Michigan. Perhaps the most impressive tribute to Mark Klemek is the fact that during his career at Cedarville, he taught every student who earned a degree from the School of Nursing. That's right. Mark joined the faculty in the first year of the program and has helped countless number of students pursue their God-given passion for serving others in nursing. Now that's impact and legacy, and we will get into much of Mark's story on the program. Mark, you've had a very active and successful career in various positions in healthcare um, before you became really a full-time college professor. What are some reasons why you decided to leave the practice and go into higher education and teach uh, future nurses? Well, one thing, when I decided to be a nurse, I wanted to be an influential nurse. And I felt like if I went into nursing, I could be a really good nurse and a really influential nurse, not just mediocre, because right. I wanted to be a leader in in where where I was working. So I felt nursing was a good profession for that. And I always said I wanted to teach nursing. Okay. And I always said that I wanted to teach nursing at Cedarville University if I had a chance. But the only problem was Cedarville University had no nursing program. Right. There was none. But I always said I want to teach nursing at Cedarville. That's that would be my my dream job to okay. do. Uh, but it didn't exist. Yeah. And so I just kept though going on taking the steps that would allow me to do that should it open up. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't, I didn't want to say, well, they don't have a program, they never will have a program, so I'll go some other direction. Right. I thought I'll just keep moving in the direction that God sort of put in my, my heart and my mind about. Right. Right. And if it comes available in the future, then I'll be prepared. And if it doesn't, well, I'll end up somewhere good as well. Yeah. So that was always my goal to teach at Cedarville, strangely, and it, here I am. What was it like to um, back in when you broke into nursing? Um, nursing is typically viewed as a female profession. How difficult was it for a male to excel in nursing? It was. It was an interesting time. If you look at my uh, history, I graduated from high school in 1970-ish. Right. So right about then, and where I lived was Youngstown, Ohio. Okay. So Youngstown, Ohio, 1970. You got to put those two together. Mm-hmm. That was within a year and a half, all of the steel mills in the town yep. of Youngstown closed. Yep. So every male over the age of 25 was suddenly out of work. And there was no one, I mean, there were no jobs. I mean, it was very hard economic time mm-hmm. up there. And my father, who was a steel mill worker, told me, no matter what you do in a profession, make sure that it has uh, security over time. Because he said, I don't want you to be 50 
and lose your job and go nowhere. Right. So one of the things that I would have thought of nursing is very secure. There will always be ill people. People will always need nursing. You can't farm it out to another overseas corporation. No. The nurse at the bedside is always got to be there. So uh, it was interesting because my brother, who was in med uh, medical school at the time, uh, I found out I was a chem major, found out that I couldn't read my qualitative analysis spectrography because I'm colorblind. Okay. And my chemistry prof called me in and said, you can't be a chemist because you're colorblind because you can't read your chromatography and spectrography. Right. And that's true. That was true in the 70s because they didn't have digital readouts. It's not true today. <clears throat> not true today at all. But that's okay <laughs> because right. better came from it. And right. so I asked my brother, what can I do with my biology, chemistry, he said, be a nurse. And I said, well, men can't be nurses. Right. And he said, oh, sure they can. And I said, really? So he said, yeah, go down to, I was at Youngtown, Youngstown State. And he said, go down to the nursing office, see if you can get, enroll there. Yeah. So I walked down the street, three buildings. And 15 minutes later, I was enrolled in the nursing school. They signed me up right away. Yeah. And the strange thing is when our class met, there were 45 of us in our class. 15 of us were males. And we were all sons of steel workers and iron workers and uh, plant fabricators right. who, who were making a change. And so there's this large group that I went through. So actually, a third of our class were males. So I'm kind of, it was irregular. Yeah. Was so interesting. So you went down the, the path of nursing partly because long-term vision says you don't want to be out of a job. But it still takes a special person with special skills yeah. to be a great nurse. What are those, what are those skills and yeah. what, how do you see that in you? Yeah. One thing that I always thought is uh, once I got into nursing, I said to myself, I told my dad and everybody, I'm going to be a nurse anesthetist. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, that was like, you said, you know, culturally for a male to go into nursing is a little unusual. Right. And everybody always, why? You know, and people say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a nurse. And they usually say, that's nice. You know, it's kind of like that pause, like, oh, what's going on here? Yeah. So, uh, but they're polite, but they're kind of, they don't know how to handle it or which way to go with it. Right. So I told my father, I said, I'm going to go in anesthesiology because that's culturally uh, more acceptable for a male to move into that part of mm -hmm. nursing. Well, once I got at the bedside and started taking care of people, yeah, I just couldn't believe how exciting that was to work with somebody who's ill you come on, you work with them, you do what needs to be done. At the end of the shift, they're better. They're, they're way better than when you came on. And it was you, and you made the difference. And I, that was, I think, the first time I'd been in a job where I actually saw the fruits of my labor relieve something like human suffering that's really important to the person who's receiving it. Yeah. And then I thought, what better profession could I show Christ in? Mm than being a nurse. Because if you go through Christ's life, what did he do? He fed people. We do that as nurses. We feed them. Right. We give them something to drink. He gave them something to drink. He, he talked to them about their fears, their anxieties. He quieted them. He calmed them. He uh, sat with them. You know, he rejoiced with them. He cried with them. He yeah. laughed with them. That's what nurses <clears throat> do. Excuse me. And nurses do that all the time. Right. And uh, we get to work with the greatest machine designed by the greatest creator ever. Yeah. And 
it's just to me, once I got into that bedside, I thought, this is totally satisfying. Right. And number two, Christ had to be a nurse. Yeah. You know what I mean? Everybody says, well, you know, he was this. No, he, if you look at what he did, he did nursing, you know. And uh, he met with the sickest and the poorest in their most dire time of need. And a lot of times with nurses, that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, that's, that's a great story and a, a great example of um, <clears throat> striving to follow Christ and be like him, to imitate his lifestyle in your lifestyle. And then the other thing, you had talked about why cedar, I was, if yeah. I could run to that. Yeah. <clears throat> At Cedarville, I can teach others to live lives of what I call professional integrity, mm-hmm. because integrity means to be one, oneness, that all your values, your beliefs, your ideas, your actions, your practice, everything is unified. You don't have, there's no compartmentalization. Mm-hmm. And I did teach at Youngstown State, a secular school for three years, and I had to compartmentalize. I could teach nursing, but then I couldn't tell the students about why I was a nurse or what what would motivate a nurse to not burn out. You couldn't bring the biblical perspective. I couldn't bring, yeah, I couldn't bring any. I had to actually hide it. Right. Well, not hide it. I had to camouflage it, disguise it. And to me, that was just... That was wrong. I could I could not teach right. denying the well, most important aspect of who I am. Right. And so I could not teach with integrity. Right. Not that I was dishonest, but I mean I couldn't teach with wholeness. Mm-hmm. Whereas at Cedarville and at a Christian institution, I could teach not just showing all aspects of who I am, but being a champion of all aspects of who I am. Yeah. So you talk about uh, how your faith was really important and it, which was a transition that why you wanted to work at Cedarville. Mm-hmm. So when did the Lord make himself real to you that you really wanted to, where you made that commitment to having a, a faith in Jesus Christ? Yeah. Um, my family is Slovak American and they came over between the years when Hitler was gaining power. Mm-hmm. They came over in the 20s. And my father was born in Slovakia. And my older brother was the first one born here. So we were not English speakers. Okay. And we were Lutheran. The family was very Lutheran, but very biblically Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my uncle George, my father's older brother, went to a Billy Graham crusade and he got saved there. And then my uncle George is, is very much passionate about anything he does. So then his passion for life was seeing the rest of his family saved. And I mean, he, he would not rest until that happened. So he was very zealous to t- teach us the gospel, mm-hmm. preach to us, yeah. uh, give us the good news of the gospel. And so through him, all of his brothers and sisters got saved. And then my dad was one of those. And then my aunt was my Sunday school teacher. My dad was a deacon. So everybody was in the church. And so at a very early age, I learned about Christ. And I, at age five or six, uh, I saw myself as a sinner in, in need of salvation and that Christ was the only way to have my sins paid for. And I asked him at that point to absolve me of my sins through his blood. Yeah, 
yeah. and become a child of his. But I, I, I didn't really understand things because I'm kind of concrete kid at mm-hmm. that age. We had a pastor who used a lot of visual uh, analogies and examples. And he always, his favorite one in the Bible was uh, that we're the bride of Christ. And he always preached about the bride of Christ. You know, we are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And one day there'll be this wedding ceremony at the yeah. supper, wedding supper of the lamb, and we'll be his bride and we'll come in and he'll present us to his father as his bride and all. And I'm sitting there as an eight-year-old thinking, did I do the right thing, you know, here getting saved? Because I'm not sure I want to dress up in some white dress, you know, and go to some wedding, you know, and, and be some bride. You're this right, is, you didn't understand. This isn't what I, I'm not, I don't think I signed on for this. So I don't know that I really was excited about being a Christian till I got old enough to realize that was all figurative speech. Right. Because I, but I remember the day I realized it was figurative. It's like this burden was lifted from me. When did it really take root in your heart and mind? Oh, I'd say really it didn't. Even though I was a good Christian kid from all outside right. appearances and went to church all the time and was a good kid, you know, learned all the Bible verses in Awana and was went to church camp three years, three weeks of the summer, every church camp in Ohio I went to. Yeah. But it really was, it wasn't with integrity. You know, yeah. it was compartmentalized. And through high school, you know, you have questions. But it wasn't until I went for my baccalaureate degree at the University of Virginia uh, on April the 15th, back in 1974, that I had gone to a party that I really shouldn't be going to, you know. And I remember coming home at two in the morning and sitting down on this brick walls. University of Virginia has these serpentine brick walls around campus. And I remember sitting there and I was straddling the wall. And I I remember thinking, okay, Mark, you're either going to get off this wall and go back to that party and just live like there is no god because mm-hmm. that's what you're, you're what you're you're that's how you're living that's how you're living now and that's how your college friends expect you to live or you can get off the wall this way with this leg and walk back home and turn your back on all of that and from that day forward you're gonna you're christ and you're not your own you're bought with a price and, yeah. and you'll serve him not that and that day i, I literally i could have gone if i'd gone this way right I'd have gone that way. And, and somehow the Holy Spirit just pushed me off the wall that way. And I don't believe I had another doubt from that day forward. Just very, so, so crystal clear to me who I am and who he is and who yeah. I am in him. It's, it's neat to hear how definitive and clear you are even these many years later of mm-hmm. that, that situation, that um, time where Christ became real. Um, I want to transition briefly to uh, your time here at Cedarville. As I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you joined Cedarville School of Nursing at its very, very beginning. Um, how were those years, in, comp- in comparison to today, similar okay, yeah. or different? Yeah, we. Uh, my association with Cedarville actually started while I was a professor at Youngstown State. Okay. Dr. Dixon had the vision to have a nursing school here. And Lila Seaman was put in charge of a uh, prospective analysis of a feasibility study to do a program here. 
and they needed some nursing faculty who are Christians to come on and help them with that. So I came out in 1981, 80, 81-82, and worked with Dr. Seaman on the feasibility study for a nursing program here, which I've always said I wanted to work at, but there was right. none. So we went to all the hospitals in this area and got agreements that they would allow our students to have clinicals there. We also got agreements with all the schools of nursing around that we are non-competitive agreements mm -hmm. that they would allow us to be there. Mm -hmm. And so started out there, but then there was no dean here and they needed a dean and I was not qualified, nor was I ready to do that at all. So I went back to Youngstown and then they called me a couple years later, the new dean, and said, would you come here? When I came, we had, the school of nursing was one, two offices one was the suite for the, where the dean was and the secretary, and the other was across the hall where all the faculty were in one room. Oh, wow. We had cubicles in Founders Hall, second floor, really? first door to the left as you go up the hall, go up the stairs. And there were four of us in that one office, about maybe a little bit bigger than this office here. Yeah. And we didn't have any labs. Uh, we got a, one hospital bed from Green Memorial Hospital, stuck it in the back of the business building, which is Milner Hall Milner. now, mm -hmm. in the one classroom that's on the south side. It was in the corner, and they would have all the gen ed classes during the day. And then in the afternoon, they'd, we'd pull out, we'd move all the desks to the front of the room. We'd pull the bed out to the middle of the room, bring in the mannequins and the equipment and show the students how to do things, and they'd practice in the evenings. Then we had to shove the bed back and gather all the equipment right. and get the classroom set up back for classrooms in the morning. We had to carry the, the mannequins that you practice on. They're, they're like human yeah. plastic forms, and they're really right. big. And I had to carry those things across campus because we stored them in the closet in Founders Hall, and we had to use them in Milner. So every day, you couldn't have a body lying in the back of a... No you know, gen ed class. No. So we had to carry it across campus every every lab. So when people hear your name, here at least here on campus, um, a couple thoughts come to mind. One is the reality that you have taught every every student who graduated with a degree in nursing at Cedarville University yes. to date. What does that mean to you? Well, it means about 2,600 people out there that maybe I helped influence uh, to live their professional lives with integrity. And I always teach fundamentals because I feel like I can make a biggest impact earliest in their career. So I teach fundamentals more than anything so that I, I can lay the foundation in their thinking and their professional lives. But I, I remember a lot of them from 10 and 20 years ago, but the more recent classes have gotten so large yeah. that... That's what I miss the most, knowing every single student by name. Mm -hmm. And that sort of fell apart about five years ago when we hit over 100 students per class. Yeah, It just was hard to do. Hard to do. And then with COVID, with masks, right. it's just I can't even recognize people that have been in there all semester. Yeah. Of, of all the programs that we offer here at Cedarville, probably the one that I hear the most about when I'm in the community. When In the community, mm -hmm. I mean... Dayton, Beaver Creek, that, that part of, of our part of the state. People are raving about how well 
our nursing students or our graduates, how well prepared they are. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean to you as being one of the faculty members who mm-hmm. helped instill that work, ac- work ethic in these students? Yeah, a lot of our students come to us already having uh, a lot of that with them. They come from families where uh, there's a lot of emphasis on service. Yeah. Um, so we get a lot of good raw material, so yeah. to speak. And we just basically uh, teach them how to use that that already comes with them. And we already focused, from day one, we focused heavily on a lot of clinical practice. Because in a baccalaureate four-year program, Mm -hmm. a lot of times uh, you'll read in literature that baccalaureate graduates don't need as much clinical time because they're going to be leaders, managers, researchers. So they don't need all these hours actually in the hospitals taking care of patients. They're sharp enough. They can learn, you know, with a few experiences. They don't need hours a day, every week, all the time. But we never agreed with that at Cedarville, the faculty that have been here. We never collectively agreed with that. We always felt that in an applied science like nursing, the actual clinical is where you really learn to think because you're actually applying what the theory that you had in class. And so while we did not have to have all the clinical hours that we require for our accreditors, we always had them we had more clinical hours than was required. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, one of our, our first accreditation visit, the visitors uh, cited us because we had too many clinical hours for a baccalaureate program. We didn't need, the students didn't need that much clinical experience. So we read that and then promptly added 10 more hours Did you of really? clinical experience to the, to the program because we believe in it. And I think that's why our students are so good at it. They're, they're, they know the theory, they know what the book says, but then they have a lot of clinical hours to make that reality and to see how it plays out in real life. So that then, we're a baccalaureate program with a right. lot of heavy clinical hours, and that yeah. just is rare. Yeah. I, as, I, as we started <clears throat> talking before we were recording, you know, I told you about my dad having um, um, angio Angie Grand today with stents uh, put in. And my hope for him while he's currently on that hospital bed is that he, the nurses that he gets today mm-hmm. and tomorrow are as well prepared and as gracious and kind as our students. Because yeah. ours are fabulous. And you and the whole faculty uh, are deserving of great credit for taking that great raw material mm-hmm. and polishing it up um, for, for great purposes. Mm-hmm. So thank you for your role in that. Mm-hmm. Um, as I want to transition toward this, the last part of this segment of the podcast, there's a lot I want to talk about, but uh, um, as I said, you're, you're known for t- two things. One, teaching every student uh, who's pursuing nursing, but you're also known for NCLEX, um, maybe, maybe even more known for that, uh, not just here on campus, but, but nationally. Um, how long have you been helping students prepare for the NCLEX exam. Yeah, the NCLEX is the uh, licensure exam right? that all graduate nurses have to take to earn the licensed registered nurse. Right. You can't practice without it. And uh, there's a lot of pressure to do it and pass it because without it, your education has been 
void. Void. It's, it's null. And so there's a, a high risk with it. So people are always wanting to approach it well prepared. So there's always been a market for preparation for that examination. Yeah. And back in 1987, uh, I decided with our first graduating class, second graduating class, okay. that I would take five of them, five of them, and they would come over to my house. My wife would feed them dinner or something. And we, they'd come over for 10 days and we would study for the NCLEX. So I would take five students that were usually higher risk for failure. And so I started with four or five students in my basement, mm -hmm. uh, preparing them for the licensing exam. And I learned a lot about how successful examinees think and how unsuccessful examinees think. And it started with four people in my basement Okay. And then the next year, uh, a good number of the f students said, would you review with us? Just yeah. Cedarville students. Right. So I did that group and they said, oh, that was, that was good. We really liked that. And I thought, oh, this is interesting too. So I started reading and developing and, and learning about the exam and finding out about it. And then in three years, I was doing 30 and 40 people two or three times a year. Again, all Cedarville people. All Cedarville people. And then about 10 years into it, other people started wanting from other schools. Okay. And then it it, it went for a good, what, from 87 to probably 2007. Uh, it went, you know, 100 people a year, mostly from Cedarville, uh, until, I've I read The Tipping Point. I don't know if you ever read that book. Oh yeah, book, it's a great book. Point. Yeah. And, uh, and I just kept at it and I thought, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll hit a tipping point till I hit critical mass of notoriety to, and I get some key gatekeepers here that'll give my name out to key people. Right. And at that point I got, uh, introduced to the university of Pennsylvania's review and I started reviewing for them mm. and I got contacts through that. And then I got a contact from a student at Ohio state, just seemingly randomly. And she ha invited me to come do the entire class of uh, graduates at the Ohio State University. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. And there were 120 of them. And I couldn't believe it. And I, I did that. And from then, it, it just tipped. And now I do, I have, last year, before COVID, I was in 11 different states doing... 40 different programs uh, with two to 300 people in the room each time all over. And, and uh, that just, it was amazing. I just never anticipated it would be that large. Right. So it's all in person. It's not even online. Well, it was all face to face until COVID hit. Okay. And when COVID hit on the 13th of March of last year, I had four different reviews. No, I had, I had eight reviews, actually. Four of mine and then four others that people were doing in, in six or seven different states scheduled, and they had already paid all their money. And the, all, everything, all the states and the universities and everything canceled at all. Oh, wow. So I had to refund all this money, and I thought, whoa, I'm going to go under, you know, yeah. take the hit. So we decided immediately that we could go virtual. Right. And I 
got a studio downtown, uh, got the equipment, uh, and we tooled up. And two weeks later, I was doing a class virtual online through Zoom for 180 people that were supposed to be face-to-face. Yeah. Before COVID started, I had one program, a face-to-face review. Right. Now I have five different products. And four of them are virtual and one's face-to-face. And tonight, from 7 to 10, I'll have a group of 40 students tutoring with me uh, online. And of those 40 people, probably 10 of them will be West African. Uh, 10 will be Eastern European and Russian, in Russia. Yeah. Uh, Filipino, uh, probably a dozen from India. And we'll be live with all of these international people that want to get a license in in the United States. And I never would have had an audience with them had COVID not hit because I had to completely change the business model, redo products. And you know, with COVID, we had time. You did. So I had lots of time to do that. And so COVID was actually the second biggest thing that that helped. Helped a tipping point. Tipping point. So I have to ask, and, and I, it's, the answer is probably obvious, but I ask, do you know what the pass rate is for students who go through these this program with you? So I there's no way I can measure that because board results are not released okay. to people such as myself. Okay. And so there's no way I can know if people pass or don't pass. But the deal is, is that word of mouth is the harshest taskmaster. Absolutely. Because if you... Don't if one person fails and they take your review, they tell dozens of people. Right. But so I go solely on the success of my previous students. And right. so they are my greatest salespeople. Right. And and I know that it's really highly successful or it wouldn't That's right. It would not pan out. And I get emails daily, people saying, I passed, I passed. I in fact I got yeah. one right before I came over here. Oh really? Someone had failed three times and took the review and now they pass. Yeah, it's it's obvious that if you weren't doing what the students needed you to do to help them pass, that you wouldn't be doing this right. uh, going forward. So mm-hmm. what um, what's the joy in helping students pass the test for you? Well, it's to, for Cedarville students, they're, they're family. You know, and you want family. You know, uh, I'm, I guess I'm a little paternalistic, like a fatherly, sure. yeah. and, and I want them to pass, and I want them to move on, and, and the Lord's called them to so much of a wonderful profession, and I want that. But as far as those that are from other universities and other nations and all, I really want them to see an educator who has Christ in them that cares. Yeah. Because most of them will come to our review and they'll say, you know, I've been in nursery school for four years, and you guys are the first people that care about me. Oh, wow. And I only met you yesterday, <laughs> and you care about me. And and why do you care? And I well, because, and, and it gives us lots of opportunity to to, to witness. Right. And uh, they, they get taken advantage of a lot with money. Schools just want their money. Right. They want the numbers. Uh, and they're just seen as a, as a demographic. So com- they're a commodity. They're a commodity, yeah, and it's really rare. It's it's radical, yeah, for them to have a faculty member who cares about them personally. Yeah. It's just they just marvel at it. They can't believe it. Yeah, 
That's, that's fabulous. That really is. Uh, as, as we conclude the podcast, um, at the core of what we're doing here on the program is we strive to tell Cedarville stories for mm-hmm. God's glory. Mm-hmm. So as you think about your life, your time here at Cedarville, how do you hope or believe you are bringing God glory through all that you yeah. do? A friend of mine uh, said something to me upon retiring, and she said, she said, uh, you're a great person. You're a great person for God. And I said, well, that isn't helping my humility at all. And she <laughs> said, she says, well, no, the reason why you're great is this thing. She says, you don't care about being great. You don't care. She says, what you're doing is you're just doing, going about every day, doing what God requires you to do to the best of your ability for him. And you're just faithful and diligent in doing that. And then you leave the greatness up to God. You know, the, God will glorify himself in what he has pleasure in glorifying himself. He will call great what he chooses to call great. And if we try to be great, we're going to miss. Right. And if we just, so I would hope that people who know me and work with me and students that have had me, that, that they walk away with an example of you, you find something good may not be the greatest and the best and the most fabulous thing in the world, but you find something good and you stick with it and you stay with it and you do the best and then you leave greatness up to God. You let him decide your notoriety or lack thereof sure. and it, because it really isn't about you in the first place. So that was, to me, I felt like, yes, that I would hope that any conversation that starts with Mark Klimek doesn't last more than three sentences, then God comes up in the conversation. Well, Mark Limick, to all the students that you have taught, obviously I haven't talked to all, (laughs) but I've heard from a lot of them, uh, rave about your teaching. They rave more about that you cared about them as people and as students. So for that, thank you for being um, a great role model here at Cedarville, for being a, a great teacher and using the the skills and the mindset that you have to better prepare students for their kingdom work, which is uh, in nursing. I want to thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. You are encouraged to share, like, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.